Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, where we talk about all the P's of pelvic health, pooping, peeing, pain, prolapse, personal development, and physical movement. I am your host, Dr. Jocelyn Conley, pelvic floor physical therapist and founder of the Vagina Doc. And today I am chatting with Dr. Sarah Boyles. Sarah is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She's a urogynecologist practicing out of Portland, Oregon, and I'm super excited to bring her on today. We're going to talk about the specialty of urogynecology and what it's like to work with a urogynecologist, how she works with her patients through telehealth, and generally what it is like to work with her specifically. What's the process of working with her or someone like her? And then finally, we talk about postpartum healing and we talk about some of the myths that are out there and what important things women should keep in mind when they are in that first 18 months of postpartum healing. Before we begin, remember our disclaimer, the information used in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in lieu of or in substitute of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's get on with the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Boyles, for coming on the show this morning. How are you? How are you surviving in Oregon? Tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, my name is Sarah Boyles. I'm a urogynecologist here in lovely Portland, Oregon. Um, it's not rainy today, which is always uh, a, a lovely thing in January. Um, I have a busy clinical practice. I see lots of patients with prolapse and incontinence. Um, and I'm always surprised at how women really want more information um, on, on this area. And they're so happy to come into the office and get the information, but really want the information earlier and want it to be easier to, um, to access. Uh, so I'm interested in educating women on the bladder and the things that they can do to kind of help themselves before they're ready to come into the office. That's awesome. It, that, it seems like we're in the age of information, especially now that people, a lot of the country is in lockdown. From my understanding, Port Oregon is one of those states, correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, and in the pandemic, it's made all of this a lot more real to me. Uh, when you deal with prolapse and incontinence, you know that women don't really like to talk about it. I've done more telemedicine during this time and it's become very clear to me how much more comfortable women are dealing with these issues in their own house. So, you know, communicating over the computer or talking um, on the phone uh, and just how much of a need there is for more information that you can access at home when appropriate. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is so nice to have the option for telemedicine. It's really great. Sometimes I'm a little frustrated by it uh, 
because of the lack of exam, I think you get your data a little bit differently, but especially for that initial visit, it's, it's so nice to get to know people that way. Um, and especially in this realm, I think women are a lot more comfortable with it. And I feel like I learn a lot seeing people in their home environment too. Has anyone allowed you to examine their vulva via telemedicine? No, it, it's kind of um, a, a running gag where we talk about it. I talk about it with my patients, um, but no, we haven't really figured that out. Um, and I also uh, don't know if there are any kind of rules and regulations about that. Some women are that I work with have been so just eager for me to see their vulva. And I'm like, I just don't need to do that. I could have you do that. Uh, and I'll just walk through like what to look for. And they are just totally like willing to put their pelvis in front of the screen. I, I know that there would be some takers, um, but no, we haven't, we haven't done that. You know, there's, there's always a fine line between what feels clinical and what just feels um, strange and different. And, and maybe we'll all get to that point, but uh, not quite there yet. So, yeah. And I just don't I, trust technology yet. Even when it says it's like, this is totally secure, HIPAA compliant. So I agree with that, right? Um, I definitely agree with that. Um, I have had a couple of patients show me their abdomen, right? And looking at scars and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, haven't, haven't quite gone there yet. So. so tell me how you got into urogynecology. You went to Pitt or you went to CM Carnegie Mellon University for undergrad, which is a fantastic right. school. I wouldn't, I know my aunt went there I believe maybe for nursing, I'm not, I don't know, but wasn't, didn't, wasn't something that I would think of like as a pre med or did you go? No, I, I was actually a chemical engineer undergrad. Um, and then, you know, decided I didn't want to do that. I um, had a minor in biomedical engineering, which is how I did a lot of my uh, medical school prerequisites. Um, but it, it was a great school and there, even more so now, there's a lot of unity between Pitt and CMU. They do a lot of research together. Um, so I did some internships during the summer doing research at the University of Pittsburgh and then moved down the street and went there for med school. Um, and the University of Pittsburgh, you know, in Pittsburgh, there's a women's hospital, McGee Women's Hospital, which is just a phenomenal place. And I was introduced to urogynecology really early. I mean, even as a medical student and even that early in my training, I kind of knew that it was what I wanted to do. Um, clinically, I, I always have preferred um, treating women. I like things that I can fix. You know, I think that's, kind of a personality type um, and that fixing, you know, it could be surgery, but it could also be just education and walking someone through behavioral changes or maybe medications or an office procedure. Um, and I think in this field, you just have the ability to impact people so profoundly, which makes it meaningful and really impact their quality of life. And people trust you with their 
you know, most intimate problems, which is just such a, a privilege um, to be able to participate in those conversations. So I've always uh, been drawn to this field, which lots of my patients think is crazy. You probably get this too, right? Where people say, why, why would you ever want to do that? Um, because they're so mortified about the things that are happening to their body. Um, but it, it, you know, it's something that you can positively impact and, uh, it just makes such a big difference for people. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I, when I was in my teens, uh, I would think that I would think how in the world, why would this person go into gynecology? I didn't know about your old guy back then, but really this stuff impacts every aspect of their health, like mental health, absolutely physical health everything. So in like, even now, like I can't help your shoulder if you are holding on for dear life in your pelvic floor, or I can't help your shoulder if you're holding tension because you're, you're all of the things that you're dealing with in life. So yeah, that's so impactful, really meaningful work. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Very, very meaningful. Um, and it, it becomes just, it's a body part, right? It's not something that it's not taboo. It's just like, I, I would say it's no, no more. I'd rather exa- do a pelvic floor exam than look at a very <clears throat> flaky diabetic foot. Uh, I agree with that. I, I usually say um, I avoid sputum because I really don't like sputum and kind of, you know, nose and mouth and lung things. Um, but, uh, it, it is, it, it becomes very objective, um, and, uh, isn't, yeah, I agree. Just not taboo at all. Um, but it, I think it takes patients a while to get there and to realize that I feel like many of my exams start with an apology from the patient. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, showered two hours ago, I forgot to shave. I, you know, I'm afraid I have an odor. Um, I'm so sorry, you have to look there. And you're right, it's, it's totally objective. I mean, there's no reason to apologize about anything. Um, It's just another part of the body. So and it, you know, I've never had anyone apologize for odor and actually have there be an odor right? That just doesn't happen. It's just this perceived, uh, fear. So it's funny you say that. And I totally agree. My patients, the people that I work with do the same thing, but then I do the same thing when I'm a patient and I'm like, Joss, what, what do you do? Right. You know, as a provider, they are not thinking about it. In fact, they're probably way worse than you are. Yeah. And like, I get the legs needing to be shaved. And it was so funny. My, one of my patients, this, this past week said that. And I'm like, I haven't shaved my legs since before the new year. Right. And, and I, I notice a lot of things. I never, it never really dawns on me whether someone has shaved or not. Right. That is just not what I am looking for at all. Uh, So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's part of the body that we're all um, a little uncomfortable with personally. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) Eventually, maybe it'll change, but maybe not. But nonetheless, if you're listening to this episode, you don't have to apologize to your provider, nor do you have to worry that that's what they're thinking about because we're not. 
but anyway, so tell, uh, tell, I, we've, I've had a previous episode that was ironically, her name's Sarah and she is a urogynecologist in Florida. Uh, but for those that have not listened to that episode or just as a recap, what is the difference between a, just a gynecologist and then a urogynecologist? That's, that's a great question. Uh, urogynecology is a newer field. It's only been around, um, it's only been a official board subspecialty since 2013. So lots of women haven't heard of it. Um, it is a hybrid between urology and gynecology. The majority of people who specialize in urogynecology um, did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. Some went the urology track though, that's also a, a possibility but then did additional training in um, pelvic floor surgeries, in the bladder, some colorectal issues <clears throat> um, to help provide comprehensive care to women. The feeling before urogynecology was that um, physicians, there, there wasn't really anyone to provide pelvic floor health to women. And a lot of women uh, weren't getting the care that they needed. Urologists were more focused on maybe the prostate and stones. Gynecology was more focused on the uterus. And women that had functional issues with the bladder um, and prolapse weren't getting the treatment that they wanted. And so urogynecology developed. That doesn't mean that there weren't urologists and gynecologists that were doing a great job um, but kind of as a, as a whole, we weren't providing that care. So basically it's a difference between training. So you do your residency in gyne obstetrics and gynecology, and then you do more training in pelvic surgery, potentially more in urology. Correct. And Correct. And during that training, during that fellowship, and most of the fellowships are three years. There are a couple that are four, but most of them are three years now. Um, during that training, you spend time with other urogynecologists, other gynecologists, urologists, um, and colorectal surgeons and physical therapists as well. Um, you know, so that you can diagnose various issues, um, as well as perform all of the treatments. There's a pretty intimate relationship though between urogynecology and physical therapy. Um, I couldn't do what I do without great physical therapists to help me. So how, what is that relationship and what does that look like for your patients and like just your everyday operations as you work? I think I probably send about half of the patients that I see to physical therapy. And I don't have a physical therapist who works in my office. And the reason for that is that there are lots and lots of great physical therapists in the Portland area. And as you know, it's really important that physical therapy is convenient for the patient, right? And so because there's such a high level of care, um, and there are spots that are pretty convenient for the patient. We um, you know, send our patients to the physical therapist that can meet their needs that is close to them. Um, so I correspond you know, personally and text the PT a lot. We correspond electronically as well. Um, with some you know, more complicated patients, there's a lot more correspondence. Sometimes it's just on autopilot. 
And then, you know, I have different lists of physical therapists because some systems um, triage patients very, very well and, and know who, which physical therapists do pain better or, you know, what they specialize in. Um, but other systems don't do that quite as well. And so if I have a patient who has a lot of um, pain or um, hypertonicity, things are just really tight and they need more specialized care, then I, um, you know, send them to those physical therapists. There's a, a physical therapist out there that did, that taught one of, one of the courses that I've take, take, took a couple years back. Her name's Nari. Let me guess. MJ Strohal. That I took a class from her years ago too. I love her. She's wonderful. <laughs> she is great. Her, her name's Nari Clemens. She's, she's in um, oh, yeah. a cash pay clinic, I believe. And I remember saying, make sure if you're interested in treating pelvic pain, you look into myofascial release. And I will tell mm-hmm. you that I hated treating pelvic pain before. I mean, I, yes, I, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't have the tools that I have now. And MFR really changed my life and changed. It's, it's complicated and it's multifactorial. And the thing about, well, I was going to say the thing about PT, but I think this is true for anything is when a patient trusts you and you send them somewhere, you frequently have one shot to get it right. So if they go to a physical therapist who doesn't have all of those tools, right, and just isn't as sophisticated, then it's pretty common to think, oh, PT won't work at all. And it's hard to get someone to believe that, oh, no, no, PT will work. You just didn't quite have the the right PT. So I think sending them to the the right person um, is just so, so very important. And that's where, so finding the right person is a challenge sometimes. And that's where some of the social media has been really great for, I think, healthcare providers, because basically they could put out, like for me, I put out a lot of content that people could basically make a decision whether or not they vibe with me before they even meet me. Yeah. And and it's, it's, that has made such a difference in at least my how I, um, who I attract into my practice. I, I agree. Um, the only thing that I would say is sometimes it's a little bit disconcerting when someone comes in and they feel like they know me, but I don't, I don't know them. Right. Um, and it can take a, a minute to kind of figure out, you know, what they've seen and where they're coming from. Um, but, but sometimes that can just be a little bit surprising. Um, totally agree. Totally agree. And I I have to remember a couple of in the past, I'm like, oh my gosh, meeting some of my idols. I listen to all your stuff and I like, no, blah, blah, blah. blah. And they're like, you are creepy. Right. I mean, we've all, we've all done it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it just takes a second. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, you watch some videos. Okay. Right. I get it now. Okay. So I reviewed, I went over into your website and it's, it's awesome, by the way, you have such great resources. Oh, thank you so much. What kind of, what's the difference between how your practice, how you operate in your practice compared to say another urogynecologist in the area? How much time do you spend with your, with, with the people that you see and what is their, what's the life cycle of their life cycle? So 
another way I, I can ask this question is like, who do you love to treat? What, at what point do they come to see you? What is, how long are their appointments and what's the kind of follow-up from, from the first time you see them until yeah. down the road? So, you know, that's, that's a really interesting question. Cause I feel like that has changed a lot over the last year and, and kind of continues to morph. So a year ago, I would have said, okay, patient's come in for their first appointment. The first time they come in, I talk to them in a conference room, actually the room I'm in right now. Um, Cause I feel like everyone um, prefers to talk. It's just easier to talk with your clothes on. So talk to them in the room. And then if they're okay with it, um, examine them. The only um, kind of procedure that I do on the first visit is I do an ultrasound just to make sure that they're emptying okay. And um, check a urinalysis to make sure they don't have blood in their urine or, or anything unusual. But otherwise, it's, it's just um, a pretty extensive exam and pelvic exam. And then, you know, what happens next really depends on the patient and, and what they want. Probably a third of the patients that I see on first exam or first visit um, are, are interested in surgery. And so we move to surgery. In my dream world, all of my surgical patients get PT before and after, um, just so that they're learning how to uh, kind of protect that surgery. I don't really believe in giving people a lot of restrictions. I mean, I think the reason to have surgery is to kind of get back to, to life and do the things that you want to do. Um, but how you use your body definitely impacts recurrence. So getting PT involved is always important. Um, sometimes, you know, we all make decisions in different ways. And so sometimes I'll, um, talk to someone, you know, we give people just so much information the first time they come in, um, talking and, and handouts. Sometimes I'll just talk to someone two weeks later to go over everything and, and see where they're at and answer any questions. I like people to take time. Sometimes patients will come in and, and they just kind of want my opinion and aren't really ready to do anything. And that's fine too. So they'll come in for an assessment. They want to know how bad their prolapse is. Um, you know, maybe they have a question about their anatomy and they'll come to check in and then, you know, not come back for a couple of years. That's fine too. Um, and sometimes people just want to know all the conservative things that they can do. So it, it really, it depends on the patient. And for me, that variety um, just makes the joy, the day a lot more enjoyable. I also, you know, kind of like the detective work too. You know, sometimes people come in and they have a, a you know, a, a problem. And I always prefer to try to figure out what's causing it rather than just adding on new medications. And so if, if we can figure out kind of what's, triggering their issue, um, you know, that's, that's always really rewarding for me and for that particular person. Yeah, absolutely. The but figuring out the cause, the driver versus just mm -hmm. slabbing on something to manage the symptoms is what probably why you got into what you're, what you do. Yeah. 
And, and it, it's interesting because I think all of those things have changed so much in the time of COVID, right? Because people are working from home and so their ergonomics are different. Um, people have gained weight. They're eating differently. Um, they're super stressed because life is crazy right now. And all of those things can definitely contribute to the um, different you know, bladder and pelvic um, symptoms that we see. Absolutely. I, yeah, it's wild how this past year, our habits have changed a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes, you know, talking to someone who can kind of connect those things, right. And say, well, it sounds like you're doing this. And I think this is causing this, um, it's just so helpful, you know, cause when you're in the middle of it, it, it can be hard to sort all of those things out on your own. Right. Absolutely. So how long do you spend with your patients in a visit? It probably varies, but on average. It varies. Um, new patients are 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a lot more, sometimes it's a lot less, um, but, you know, usually about 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, all of that time is kind of spent with the patient. Um, I work with a scribe in my office who um, does a lot of my documentation. And so that means that um, a, a lot of that is kind of done for me. So that, um, you know, gives me more time to talk to people. You know, I spend a lot less time kind of clicking. I don't, sometimes I'll have the computer in the room just to reference things, but I'm not actively using it when I'm talking to patients. Um, and I find that that just makes the visit so much more enjoyable for me and for the patient as well. I didn't always do that. I mean, for a while, um, I was doing kind of my own charting and I just didn't enjoy work as much because I felt like there was this huge barrier between myself and the patient. Um, and so, and, and that's just the way documentation is done these days. Um, so doing it this way just makes the day a lot more enjoyable for me. That is so wise and definitely professional goal of mine. It's just to hire a scribe. Well, it's interesting because um, patients actually thank me for it, right? Well, they'll say, well, you're looking at me and it's been a long time since I was in a room and the doctor looked at me. I, I should also admit that I'm a horrible typist. Um, which, you know, is something I should correct one of these days. And this year too, the, the scribe used to come into the room with me, but with uh, social distancing, that doesn't really make sense. And so now she actually just listens and documents things. Um, and, and that's super helpful too. And if I need anything, you know, if there's an operative report that I need or extra documentation, she'll look it up and then send it to me, um, which is, you know, fabulous. That's amazing. So let's talk now, well, before we started recording, we talked about things that kind of bug us that we see online or in just in today's world. And <laughs> we both agreed that the six week, oh, you're fine uh, recommendation or belief after kids is something that needs to change. Yeah, so I definitely ag agree with that. You know, we kind of live in this 
Instagram world, not to pick on Instagram, where everybody wants things to be picture perfect. And lots of people are told that after six weeks, their you know, pelvis should be totally back to normal. And the truth is, is that that's not true. I would say that most of the time at six weeks, the superficial wounds have healed, right? Tears and episiotomies, that's healed. There isn't anything visible, but that doesn't mean that your nerves are working well or your muscles are working well. And um, it can take a lot longer for those things to come back. So when we tell patients at six weeks, oh, you should be doing you know, kegels on your own and working your pelvic floor on your own, you may not be able to. Those um, muscles may just not work for you at all. And I think that's such an important message because it's not that you're not trying, it's just that your equipment hasn't quite come back yet. Yeah, absolutely. Six week mark. It, I bring it back to just a major hamstring injury or a surge. Like, I know it's not the same as like a major surgery, like an ACL reconstruction, but when you compare the two childbirth, whether it's C-section or a vaginal delivery, uh, I think from an impact on the whole body, the vaginal or C-section delivery is much more intense than a hamstring strain, whether it's grade two, a severe grade two or moderate and an ACL reconstruction. And it's like women expect to just bounce right back. Meanwhile, the standard of care for ACL reconstruction is prehab before surgery, uh, rehab after pretty quickly. But like that first phase of rehab is just, let's get the tissues healed, learn how to reconnect. And it's, it, I mean, there's definitely a difference between someone that knows how to rehab their ACL patients and someone that does not. So yeah. a lot of these women are on their own and they're not even with an, uh, a, a provider that specializes in this. So, yeah, I mean, it makes me crazy and it even makes me crazy that when women come to me at like three to six months and they're like, I've signed up for an Ironman and I'm like, you did what? It's hard to kind of be realistic, I think. So I'm, I'm sure that you know this, but you know, in other countries, like in France, um, public floor physical therapy is standard of care after delivery. Um, where everybody goes in for, you know, somewhere between eight and 12 sessions just to rehab that part of the body. Um, and there, you know, usually insurance does cover it in the United States, but it's just not part of our culture. And I think a lot of times you're just recovering and keeping it together or getting it together and, and just not thinking about this aspect um, of your recovery, because we don't emphasize it. I, I think, you know, the other thing too, is just that the, you know, the, the female body is amazing. And what women go through during delivery is amazing. So they've done all of these studies and modeling at the University of Michigan. And when you look at the middle part of the pelvic floor muscles, right, that puborectalis, during delivery, it stretches 
3.25 times longer than its baseline rate, right? Which no other muscle at any point in time or life does, right? I mean, that's just a, a crazy stretch. And the other muscles stretch a lot too, but not you know quite to that degree. And that's just a, a phenomenal thing. I mean, how does that, how does that happen? And then afterwards, it, it has to recover. They've also done a lot of MRI studies where they've looked at MRIs of the pelvis after vaginal delivery. Um, and, and even at eight weeks, you can have a lot of muscle swelling and, and there can be edema in the bones that are still there and some cortical fractures. And most of that resolves. They did the study where they looked at MRIs at eight weeks and then at eight months. Most of it resolves by eight months, but even at eight months, some women who've had really difficult deliveries, mm -hmm. um, and by difficult, I mean, you know, pushing for a long time, um, use of vacuum or forceps um, or an episiotomy even, um, those women are, are more likely to have ongoing structural issues that, that will resolve um, but it, it just takes a lot longer to heal. I'm so glad that you mentioned the cortical fractures. I, uh, and I love that you got your undergrad in engineering. So I started, <laughs> I'm so afraid of your next question. <laughs> <laughs> so I went into biomedical engineering at Penn state thinking like, this is what I wanted to do. Get into like this stuff. Naturally, it was just like chemi and electrical engineering on drugs. So I switched out of it, but um, found the one, uh, one textbook that was dedicated on the female pelvic floor, the biomechanics of it and, or the, the engineering of it and fascinated about those components and like the different stress and strains on the different mm -hmm. ligaments and just even the, the muscular connection of the, of the levator ani onto the underside of the pubic bone. Because yeah. sometimes women have significant pubic region pain, the pelvic floor, of course, I mean, it, it feels a certain way, but like, let's not discount the fact that you could have what we think of shin splints on your, on the underside of the pubic bone or actual little micro fractures. Mm -hmm. And so the women and this, this, I'm not going to go underneath under or into the rabbit hole of the, the energy deficiency and bone health aspect of it, but women that want to get back to running and they're just setting themselves back every time they try it just, how can we get this information out to people and them listen? Well, I think everybody responds to imaging, right? And, and to a picture and all of the studies. So looking at MRIs of the pelvis, that's not something that we do clinically after delivery. Um, it's all research based at this point in time. Um, and, and so, you know, we do some ultrasound, right? But ultrasound doesn't really visualize it as well. And, and I think there might be a point where we really need to image people to, to really pinpoint exactly what's going on with them and, and tailor recovery treatments, right? Um, so, so their studies showed that about 30% of women who had difficult deliveries had cortical fractures. Um, 
which is, you know, is a, is a big number and is definitely going to impact your healing, especially if you are someone who is really athletic and wants to start using your body. Um, so I, I think it would help if we got more specific. Um, in, instead of just saying, I mean, I think what we say a lot of time is, ah, you know, you'll, you'll get better. Just give it time. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you probably need a little bit more than that. So one thing that comes up as a question for me, because I think about this, I'm like, I think I would love to, for this person to have some images, but I wouldn't even know who to send, like who is trained in the specifically to look for things in the pelvis and recognize these patterns. Who would I send a patient to? What kind of provider? I don't think it's even, it's not really clinically available yet. Right. And, and, you know, the, the people that are really doing the research in this is um, they're all at the university of Michigan or the ones that I know are at the university of Michigan and they're figuring out the sequences and exactly how you do that MRI and how you look at it. Um, the, the only way to do it. I mean, when I have a patient like this and um, I need to figure out what image to get, there's one radiologist in town who's really good at women's health and is interested um, in this field. And so I end up calling her and kind of talking it out with her and, and figuring it out. But it is not a standard protocol at this point in time at all. So does that mean insurance wouldn't cover it? Unfortunately, sometimes it does mean that, right? Uh, Where the, the one person who covers it um, or who knows how to do it might not be the person that your insurance wants you to go to. And that's unfortunate, especially when we're talking about MRIs, right? Because MRIs are spendy, super spendy. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I can talk to her and talk about a protocol and then call the um, approved, insurance approved radiologist and have them do the study that I want. But, but that's not always easy right? Where they may not have the protocol and it may not make sense to them. Um, so all of this is developing, I would say. So all of you that are listening, just hang tight. We're healthcare's trying. We're, We're trying. trying. We're trying. So would you so, yeah. say it would be like when you're assessing risk and benefits of, or the, the pros and the cons of going cash pay for an image right now, would you advise whether a patient or another provider that you're collaborating with, like to recommend to move forward on imaging or no, because there's not enough providers right now that can really. I, th I think it depends, right? I think it depends on the data that you're going to get from that image and what clinical decision it's helping you make, right? So if, if um, we're getting that image just to show you that you do have a fracture and um, you need to tone it down for a little bit, that's probably not a good use of your um, money. But if we're doing this image and I'm going to say something like, you know what, there, there is a fracture here. Um, you do have uh, a symphysis separation. I think we need to get an orthopedic surgeon involved well, then that might be a, a reasonable time to, to do it. Um, so I, I think it depends on what decisions that image um, is going to lead to. 
Okay. So depending, I mean, this would obviously not be a decision for the patient to make on their own. So if you are listening no. and you are just a patient, this, don't feel like this is something that you have to decide. Uh, it's more your healthcare team. So, yeah. And, and sometimes you can get a picture that's not quite the perfect picture, um, but would be one that insurance would cover and would help you make the decision. Okay. Good to know. So changing gears a little bit, but still on the topic of postpartum, early postpartum, a lot of women, they'll send me a message or an email or they'll call and they're like really concerned about prolapse. Meanwhile, they're only like four to six weeks postpartum. Mm -hmm. Do you get this or what are your thoughts and how can we pretty much ease their fears at four to six weeks, even eight weeks postpartum? Yeah. So those patients, I always have them come into the office and examine them and tell them kind of what stage of prolapse they have, because I think it's important for them to know that. Um, I also think that there is a good chance that it is going to get better on its own. So in that kind of immediate postpartum period, your muscles aren't working. And so it's always going to feel worse, right? As those muscles kind of wake up, um, things are going to be elevated. The other thing that can really dramatically impact how a prolapse feels is hormone level. So right after you deliver, when you're breastfeeding, your estrogen levels are really low. Um, a lot of times at that point, women will be on a birth control that's progesterone predominant, um, just because that is less likely or not likely to impact um, breastfeeding and, and your milk supply. And all of that drives your estrogen down even further. So sometimes I'll see women who have a small prolapse, but they're just miserable. And some of that is because of your hormonal status. So I am in no way suggesting that you should stop breastfeeding or come off your birth control because those things are really, really important. But I think it's important to know how those things affect you and that it's going to get better with time. Sometimes I'll give patients a little bit of vaginal estrogen to improve that sensation. Sometimes I'll um, give, if someone's really miserable and we're just waiting for things to get better, sometimes I'll have someone use a pessary for that period of time, right? So a, a pessary, usually they're shaped like rings. Um, it's a piece of silicone that you put in the vagina and it holds everything back up. And, and while that may not seem like a great permanent solution, when we're waiting for your body to kind of recover and come back, it, it can keep you so much more comfortable um, that, that it can really be a lifesaver at that particular point in time. So things to be aware of if you're, for those of you listening is how your hormones are, postpartum and just generally in that early state, your, your muscles and everything else is just not working immediately. So hang tight, but there are things that you can do in the meantime. Yeah. So in this case, Sarah, would, would they go to a gynecologist or would they go to a urogynecologist? What would you suggest? Should they go to their OB? <clears throat> the yeah, so I think it's fine to go to your OB. Lots of OBs are really comfortable with this. And, and what usually happens is that if the OB isn't comfortable, 
then they might send the patient to you for physical therapy, or they might send them to me for kind of further evaluation. Um, but I would say you should, you should absolutely start with your healthcare team because most of the time they're gonna be able to, to help you. Um, and it, it also, you know, it's a really hard time to, I mean, when you're dealing with a new baby and you're not sleeping and you're trying to drink enough water and you're constipated, I mean, it's a hard time to look for a new provider. So absolutely stick with your team, but be proactive and, and ask the question and, and, you know, tell them what you are feeling. And then if you're not satisfied with the results, um, you know, you could ask them for next steps. Now, what, so you mentioned PT, are there any people that you think do not respond to PT or what, and let's stick to postpartum. To PT. Yeah. Who have you found so the, don't? So I think PT is really hard for some women, right? So I think it's hard for women who have an abuse history um, and, and, not everyone, but sometimes those patients have a really hard time with PT. <clears throat> I think some women just don't like PT, right? Don't want to spend the time doing the exercises, don't want to spend the time doing it. So while I love PT, if I get a lot of pushback from a patient, um, I will spend time trying to get them to agree with me. But if, if they say, you know, this really is not for me, um, they're, they're not going to get a good result from it. And then it's not a good use of anybody's time. For patients that have kind of tight muscles and pain, um, you know, a lot of times that'll turn around pretty quickly with PT, with the right PT. Um, so for those patients, I think it's, it's really important. But for patients who need to strengthen, I mean, you have to keep doing that. You have to keep working on your core strength. That is, you know, kind of a, a lifetime pursuit. And if, if someone says, you know, that's just me, I'm, or that's just not me, I'm not going to do it there. It's just not a great fit. So, yeah. I'm so glad you brought up that, that, because yeah, I mean, I, I, when I worked at my first job, I, basically the, some people would come in and say, I'm only here because my doctor's making me come here. And I'm like, yeah. well, <laughs> you have to be a believer. Right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. Cause it takes a lot of personal time and commitment. Um, so, yeah, I think the other thing too, is, you know, when you're a new mom, life is a little bit overwhelming. And, and so I think it can be really difficult to make the time for PT. I mean, your time isn't your own. Um, and, and if we're sending you to something that feels just super stressful to you on top of everything else that you're dealing with, then I don't, I don't think that's particularly helpful. I, I think it would be nice. And I think, so I'm not a fan of COVID, don't get me wrong, but I do think it's taught us a lot of interesting lessons, right? And so if we can get to a point where um, someone comes in for kind of an initial evaluation, you know what's going on with them. And then we can do a lot more online things and have them work at home, but get the support that they need. Um, I, I think that would just be great for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the people that I found that basically their 
their pelvic floor is underactive. They don't need a lot of manual therapy. They're really, and they, they've got, I've seen them in that office. They understand how to contract. They understand how to properly let go and all of those things. They're perfect for the virtual. Yep. Which made a bit, made a big difference in ease of not having to get people to watch their kids and, and traffic Mm -hmm. and so on. Totally. It just makes things a little bit easier. And then I think that those people become um, super smart and super educated. And then in terms of continuing to do pelvic floor exercises can, you know, work it into Pilates or yoga and, and do something that um, has a lot of um, social benefit as well um, and incorporate it into their lifestyle. Right. And that's really what you want is for people to keep doing it and in, in a way that is enjoyable for them. Right. Integrated in their life. Yep. So that's not an additional task that they have to do, but they're actually like working yeah. it in something they like. And they enjoy it. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So a less serious topic. What are some of the funniest questions that either your friends or your family or even some just people online will ask you? Um, so I, I think kind of a, a running gag is always, um, is a urogynecologist, somebody who was trained in Europe, right? I get, I get that one a lot, um, which is always a little bit amusing. Um, I, I think never thought of that, but that's a good one. Yeah, I know. Um, it, it I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on that one. You know, I think for me, I don't necessarily get so many funny questions. I, I just get so many questions that, that people are just so afraid to, to mouth. Right. I mean, I feel like people are always thinking, Oh, Oh my God, she's going to think I'm crazy or I'm so gross, or she's never heard this before. I'm going to shock her. And I can't remember the last time that I was, you know, shocked or surprised in the office. Right. I mean, usually I'm thinking, Oh, 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 okay. You fit into this category. I've heard this, you know, 300 times before. Okay. This is what we're going to do. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare that I end up feeling shocked or surprised. Yeah. They're the things that people are concerned about. I mean, everyone, or there's someone or many people that they would have no idea that are also dealing with the same thing. So, well, and I, I think, um, yes, I, I think that that's kind of an, an amazing point is that all of this is pretty isolating and they, everyone thinks that they're the only person that's going through it. I um, was reading something the other day and I, I didn't really realize this, but Christy Teigen, after she delivered said, I didn't realize I would go home in diapers. And I think it's so powerful when a beautiful celebrity comes out and says, Hey, I, I had this problem too, right? It just normalizes it for everybody. We need, so, and I'm assuming that's resolved for her. I don't really know though. Hopefully we need more I know. people. I hate to, I hate to go right to the celebrity or, or athletes, but we need more people that are willing to talk about it. And I did have a CrossFitter on here before. Uh, I think she's number one in the U S but not willing to talk about pelvic health, unfortunately, but 
Well, and that's so interesting, right? Because I feel like for me, CrossFit is job security. I mean, I see so many patients who have issues because of CrossFit. Um, it, it's such a maximal effort. And, you know, there've been a lot of research studies looking at women who leak during CrossFit and it's, it's huge. I mean, I think it's over 50%. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, I, mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm an avid CrossFitter. I don't like CrossFit for 99% of people because they don't have, they're so out of body. They're just in the pain cave. They're not aware of, yeah. they don't care. They don't have enough intent of like, this is my focus of this workout. I am going to choose my speed, intensity, weight based on my ability to sequence this movement with my breathing. It's right. like, nope, I want to be at the top of the leaderboard or I want to beat my last score. And that is such a problem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's, um, but yeah. it is job and security. It, it is a little bit of job security and, and not that CrossFit is bad. Um, but it puts an awful lot of stress on your pelvic floor, an awful lot of pressure, and you have to have your PhD in physical therapy to figure out how to do the exercises correctly and, and mitigate that a little bit. It, the culture in CrossFit to it, it seems to attract a type of person that, I don't know, it would not be as will they're either they're either laughing about it but truly insecure or they're just like very closed lip yeah well i think it's an all out perfectionist type of personality right where they do everything you know 120% um and and so this you know kind of personal weakness is really difficult yeah so how do you have the time to be on social media I think that's a great question. I mean, for me, it's a pretty recent development over the last year. So, you know, there have been times during this year where, you know, my clinical work has kind of come to a stop. Um, I, I shouldn't really say, well, there was, it was at a stop for a little bit, but um, we're just, my days are different than they've ever been. Um, and so for me, it, it was really uh, kind of this, um, desire to educate women um, and, and feeling like it was really lacking. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it, but this year gave me time to think about it. I batch a lot of things, right? So, you know, I mean, I do it all kind of, um, you know, on Sunday morning and get it all ready for the week and then send it out that way. I couldn't do it every day. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, I outsource some things. I outsource a lot of things in my daily life that I don't like to do. Hey, that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? Do you like being on social media? Has it helped just bring value to your career in your life? I, I do like it. I feel like um, so the, the people that I see in my clinic are people who are at a point where they're really ready to seek care, right? So they're kind of at a different point, but you know, the thing that we know is that, you know, about half of women who have these issues actually say something to their doctor, right? So there are all of these people out there who have these issues who aren't really ready 
to talk about it with their doctor. And so those are the people um, that I'm really trying to help because I think there are a lot of things that you can do on your own um, or at least try on your own. And then if it doesn't work, then you should come in and, and kind of get help. Um, but I, I just feel like there are so many women out there who are in, impacted by pelvic floor issues and, and aren't ready to talk about it yet or aren't ready to come into the doctor and talk about it. Or, you know, maybe they've talked to their primary care doctor about it and it, it just wasn't, um, just they didn't get to the help that they needed. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, sometimes you leave your most important question to the end of the visit, and then there just isn't enough time to address it. And you feel like um, your problems are being minimized, but there just wasn't enough time. So I, I think I am not trying to disparage primary care doctors. I think it's a really hard job and they do a lot of great things. Yeah, I totally hear you about the the PCP. It is a it is a tough job because it's you're just it's a like tough you job. never know what's coming in today. But totally. I, yeah, the social media aspect has helped kind of bridge that gap for those fifty percent that aren't ready, and you're providing value for those people to help them along, build the bridge until they yeah. are. You know, one of the things that I struggle with a little bit on social media is just it's really hard to figure out. Um, the quality of the information that you're getting, right? Because there's some really good information. There are a lot of people who are just trying to sell things. Um, and, and those procedures or, you know, whatever it is, they, they might be great things, but it's, it's hard. I think it's hard for an individual to kind of weigh that, um, you know, because it's all presented with the same weight, yeah, there's been a few that I've been really irritated with, like accounts or products. I'm like, this is not, mm. right. One, I mean, I am a fan. This isn't, this wasn't referencing what I'm about to talk to about, mention next, but the um, different, different types of pelvic floor trainers or exercisers that connect to the phone. Uh, I think they're great, but I don't like that they seem like they're a by bypass of seeing someone that can actually teach you how to use it. I, so I would agree with that, right? Uh, um, so the, I mean, I have a couple of feelings about that. I mean, one is that you should only buy one if you're actually going to use it, right? I mean, the hardest thing about those pelvic floor trainers is taking the time to put it in the vagina and do the exercises. And if you know in your heart of hearts, you're going to do that for two weeks and then stop doing it, just don't, don't do it. I mean, the nice thing about exercising your pelvic floor is people can't really always see you doing it. And so you can do it anywhere and you don't have to insert something in, in the vagina. I think, you know, for some women, I think it really helps them, right? Um, it gives them a little bit of feedback. It tells them what to do. The program can get harder. And, and for, I mean, in my dream world, everyone would get assessed um, and, and know how to use their um, pelvic floor before uh, getting a trainer. I don't really think that that's practical. And so then, you know, my next step would be if you're going to use it, um, you know, go ahead and use it. But if you're not getting the results that you want, then, then you need to 
come in and, and be evaluated, right? Because there are a lot of reasons why it, it may not help. And I've definitely seen patients who, um, you know, had an issue like incontinence um, that was really caused by muscle tightness in the pelvic floor, right? And then went on some huge, you know, Kegel regimen and using pelvic floor weights and blah, 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 and just made everything so much worse um, while trying to do the, the right thing, right? Um, and I think it's it's hard to know on your own kind of what's 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 going on down there. Right. Yeah. I've seen that a couple, couple more times than I'd like to of the overactive and then they do it and then they're way worse, but yeah, definitely the, the practicality and, and the real of everyone getting assessed that is, it's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you try it on your own and it doesn't work there, you know, there may be a, uh, a reason that you're not thinking about, um, for, for why it isn't working. Yeah, totally. And so the that, answer usually is not do more. <laughs> right. Right. So that transition, that's a great transition for my last two questions for you. Where do you hope to women's health, particularly related to pelvic health will be in the next five to 10 years? So I think that it is becoming more talked about. I think women are pushing it more. I, I don't really think that incontinence is more common than it's ever been, but I think, you know, women want to be active and are um, just not going to put up with it and are looking for solutions. So I think the biggest thing is the conversation and talking about it and helping um, women to kind of navigate that, right? Um, and I think that, you know, as providers, I think that we need to always remember that it's really all about the patient, right? And it's not about me, it's not about my business. It doesn't matter to me if I help the patient or a physical therapist helps the patient, as long as you get the help that, that you need. Um, and, and so I think we're still at a really early point in all of this mm -hmm. where increasing the conversation is, is really, you know, so, so very important. And in, in my dream world too, you know, there would be a lot of things around delivery, right? Where everyone would get um, pelvic floor physical therapy after they delivered. Um, you know, there are a couple of postpartum clinics um, in the United States where all women who have third and fourth degree tears or um, forceps and um, vacuum deliveries get kind of screened to make sure that they aren't having um, kind of blossoming pelvic floor issues. I think doing something systematic like that would really be helpful. You know, one of the issues with the pelvic floor is that it is, you know, women frequently have their worst pelvic floor issues when they're postmenopausal, but it's a series of things that happen to you over your entire life. And if there's more prevention that we can do around the time of delivery um, and, and in the postpartum period, I, I think that would be amazing. Your dogs clearly agree with me. Yes, they are. They are barking in, a, they're, in agreement. They're applauding. Yes, my brilliance. 
The last question that I have is how can we as providers more, I mean, the specifically the providers in the pel pelvic health space, because it is a, I think a niche area in healthcare. How could we collaborate better to just more effectively serve the people in our communities? Because it is challenging to, sometimes it's blood pressure. Sometimes it's not yeah. mechanical. Well, how could we, how could we communicate? Because it seems like we're all siloed. Yeah. I, I, so I think, you know, that's, that is typically my answer is communication. I, I think one of the things I would say communication and not throwing each other under the bus. So one of the things that I frequently hear from people is, well, you know, I saw this patient and I, um, did X and I made the patient better, but these three providers who saw this patient before me didn't address it. And the, you know, they, they didn't do a good job. Um, and I think when there is a provider that you don't feel like is screening appropriately or doing something correctly, um, I think it, makes sense to circle back to that provider and talk to them, right? Because every provider wants to do the best job that they can. And if you're systematically missing something or not thinking about it, then, then we, should, we should all educate each other rather than saying, well, this person isn't doing that. That person is seeing a lot more patients than you are, right? So sometimes, I mean, just yesterday I was watching something and just as an example, heard this from a physical therapist, right? Who was saying, oh, well, this OB was telling their patients that um, they should just do Kegels at six weeks and really they needed this other thing. I think it's important to go back to that person and say, hey, you know, I think it would benefit your patients if you did this. You're, you're helping more women if you go back to the source. And sometimes those conversations are awkward, but most of the time that person is super appreciative Right. And then they can add that little thing into what they're saying to their patients. And that just helps everybody. It's not very glamorous, my answer. Um, but I think that that communication and recognizing that we're all a team and working together is really the most important thing. It doesn't have to be glamorous. Simple and clear is kind. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> well, and, and truthfully, you know, if I'm doing something, um, and, you know, someone says, Hey, I think you, you could do this better. I, you know, I want you to tell me, Heck yeah, right? I'm okay with that. And if I disagree with it, I'll tell you, but that's okay. You yeah. should still tell me. Absolutely. It's, we all have different ways our practice operates yeah. and, and well, and I think you said it best. I mean, this is a super subspecialized area, right? I know a lot about one little tiny thing. And so if someone is, you know, sending me patients and they don't know as much about my area, well, they, they shouldn't, but let me, you know, let me give you a little bit of guidance, right? Yeah. Absolutely. These are the three things I want you to do before you send someone to me, or this is the one thing I want you to say to the patient or, you know, send these people to me sooner. I love that. Like giving them a, just a, a few things to do prior to, or to yeah. determine whether or not they're appropriate or not. And that's what awesome. most providers want. Right. And, yeah. and I think also taking the time to, you know, call somebody, 
I mean, that doesn't happen a lot in this day and age. And I think that's really meaningful to people and just helps us all work as a team. Yeah, for sure. Well, Sarah, it has been awesome getting to chat with you. Thank you. Yeah, so thank much you so much for your this time. This has been super fun. Good. I'm glad you had a good time. Is there anything that you would like to add or if or a way or any resources that you have on your website that might be useful for people that are listening to this episode? Yeah. So I'm um, just coming out with a new post kind of on postpartum and things to um, think about and work on. So definitely look for that. Um, my website is thewomensbladderdoctor.com. And then the other thing I would say is feel free to ask me questions or if there are different things that you want to hear about or learn about, just let me know. And then I can incorporate that. Awesome. I'll be sure to put your links on the show notes. And then just if the, for anyone that's listening, her, uh, Sarah, your Instagram is at the women's bladder doctor. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, no odd spelling. No odd spelling. No. Okay. Mm -mm. All right. Well, Sarah, did we get real today? I think we did. It was super fun. Thank you again for coming on the show. And until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.